Deep Faith Nine, Season 4. Greetings, friends, and welcome to the Deep Space Nine, Deep Faith Nine podcast. And uh, today we're going to be having a look at the episode called Hippocratic Oath, which is the third episode in season four. And I'll, I'll read the synopsis as we do and then introduce our guest for today. Bashir and O'Brien have concluded a biosurvey in the Gamma Quadrant. They pick up a subspace magneton pulse, and while investigating the shuttle crash, crashes and lands on uh, uh, and on a planet and they are taken prisoner by a rene- renegade group of Jem'Hadar. Its leader, Goronagar, uh, got free of his addiction to Ketrasol White on this planet, the drug that makes them dependent on the founders. He has brought um, a group of Jem'Hadar to be cured too, but the planet's magic won't work on them. He asks Bashir to help before their supply of Ketrasol White runs out. While the Doctor wants to help them, O'Brien is adamantly opposed. Meanwhile, back on Deep Space Nine, Worf spots an unknown, uh, sorry, a known criminal uh, in Quark's bar, and he thinks the Ferengi is plotting something and is in- increasingly getting agitated by the way that Odo handles security on the station. Worf decides to take matters into his own hands with disappointing results. Our episode today, Hippocratic Oath, um, really uh, required a, um, a medical opinion, uh, given its name. Uh, and so uh, I've uh, um, invited uh, Connor Morris, Dr. Connor Morris, uh, a second year um, uh, doctor uh, working in neurology at this point in time. Uh, welcome to the podcast, Connor. Thanks very much, Well, It's a pleasure to be here. Um, I'm going to ask some icebreaker questions, as I usually do with new guests, uh, and um, so uh, I'll, I'll ask the, uh, the the question with the obvious answer first. Uh, when did you start watching Deep Space Nine? Well, actually, I started today, so this is the first episode I've watched, and I sort of noticed pretty early on that I've missed a bit of backstory, but I think that sort of gives me an interesting perspective to take this episode in with. Yeah, we'll look forward to that and unpacking that perspective. Um, out of the the characters that you've seen today, um, did you did you have any favourites or feel a connection with any of them, or, or did you have any questions about uh, some of the uh, odd and different characters that you spotted in today's episode? Um, well, I think initially, I, for obvious reasons, was drawn to Bashir, um, but certainly raised a lot of questions throughout the episode about the backstory for the different not only the characters, but the groups that are within the episode, particularly the, and I'm going to probably pronounce things terribly throughout, so apologies in advance, but the, is it the Gomjabar? The Jemhadar. Jemhadar. Yes, yep. Um, and, and their background would, was sort of one thing I couldn't quite piece together. Yeah, yep. Which I imagine was important. The Jemhadar are recently, reasonably new characters to Star Trek um, and, and really only found in Deep Space Nine. And, uh, um, one of the things that that 
was kind of hinted at in this episode, but probably not overly obvious, was that um, the space station Deep Space Nine um, is significant and unique because it sits just on the inside of a wormhole, which is like a, a passage between one side of the galaxy and the other. Uh, and so the Jem'Hadar are part of the Dominion, which are on the other side of the wormhole, and uh, the wormhole's only been recently discovered. So... Um, as the Federation has explored that gamma quadrant on the other side of the wormhole, they have discovered the Dominion is trying to restrict them from doing that and the Jem'Hadar are the soldiers of the Dominion. So that's a bit of a potted Jem'Hadar history there for you. Um, so they're, they're a frightening enemy um, of, of, of the Federation um, and um, fanatical uh, drug addict controlled um, soldiers. Um, so, so that kind of explains the whole Ketrasol White thing they were doing as yeah. well. Yeah. There you go. Some of the other aliens, uh, the Ferengi barkeep Quark, um, uh, is is a is a capitalist. The Ferengi are very much into making money wherever they can. Uh, and uh, uh, Worf is a Klingon, um, uh, and uh, uh, the only Klingon serving in Starfleet. So, um, and has has been a well loved character from the Next Generation series, uh, who has just joined the cast uh, just this season, and is finding his adjustment between working in a military space uh, spaceship to uh, now being uh, an officer in a civilian um, space station. Because obviously that's part of his his stress and dilemma in this episode. Mm, absolutely. Yeah. Well, um, what um, what immediately jumped out for you in terms of topics of uh, of, of faith, uh, theology, philosophy, and ethics as we actually um, jump into this story today? Hippocratic oath. I think the immediate thing that jumped out to me, particularly taking on the the A story first, um, was sort of looking at a moral obligation or, or a feeling to help others in need. Um, and mm. you could certainly see the two different perspectives of looking at it from O'Brien and Bashir, and I think that was displayed quite clearly. Um, and I think what, what also jumped out at me is, despite the setting being in sort of a science fiction television show, you can easily take the same stories and themes and see them applied in a purely human setting. So I think it was quite interesting how that, that came out so clearly. Yeah, yep, that's wonderful. One of the things, one of the reasons why I'm doing this podcast is that sometimes some of the 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 issues that arise, um, and and in this case, you know, the issues of of medical ethics for our enemies uh, or for people who might mean us harm, um, are harder to talk about in a purely human setting. But in a science fiction setting, we can actually um, play around with and ask those questions. And so I. I, I one of my passions is actually teasing out those questions from science fiction and allowing them to inform us in in in, in our everyday life so um that's excellent um so uh, like as a doctor um you know uh I, I mean, we've all thrown around this word hippocratic oath um but uh, you've probably had to study it in detail um uh, how does it? How does the Hippocratic Oath work? Uh, and is it is it something that is still currently a part of medical ethics? Um, well, believe it or not, I actually, because of matters outside of our control, never had to go through the whole process of reading it out at a graduation in front of a crowd due to extenuating circumstances. Mm -hmm. So, personally, I haven't studied it in too much detail. But from what I sort of had read up on and in our teaching on ethics at university. 
Um, it's interesting to look at the way it's been adapted over time. Whilst they're sort of intrinsic um, morals that guide the, the oath itself have stayed relatively similar, the applications and the specifics of the wording within it has changed quite a lot over time. But I think what rings true is about taking sort of the, the privilege and the science and the art of medicine and, and applying that in a way that benefits others. Um, I think that sort of is quite clearly seen in what Bashir is trying to do is taking his knowledge, his experiences, his expertise. Um, and despite yep. being in a, in a position under duress, he's still trying to do what he thinks is in the best interests of people that in need. Yep. And there's that remarkable scene where O'Brien comes to liberate him from um, uh, where he's being forced to work and and he's got no guard to stop him from leaving and he doesn't want to go. Um, and, and, uh, and you can see that there's a real um, conflict of viewpoints um, and it's very difficult to sort out which, like there, there, there really isn't an absolute truth in 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 or maybe there's an absolute truth in both of those viewpoints yeah, definitely i think the other interesting thing and 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 something that's probably a less popularly known part of the hippocratic oath is it also talks about um knowing when to withdraw your efforts and and not acting in futile sort of in a futile way um and i think if you if you yep. look at it from a, a slightly more pessimistic viewpoint at what Bashir is trying to do you can say that he's potentially naive and should have realized that there was no hope for him. Um, and so he's using his own arrogance and ego to try and prove to himself that he's good enough to save these people that maybe he couldn't have saved in the first place and, and ought to have known. There's um, another way of yeah, looking yeah. at it. Yeah, you've absolutely nailed nailed Bashir yeah. and his God complex there that he does. And I and I guess when, when uh, you know, you, you, your knowledge, uh, especially knowledge of medicine becomes so – so in depth and acute that it's uh, you, you could fall into the 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 position of thinking that um, that anything was possible um, and and that 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 all of the things that are possible should should be done. Um, yeah, and and, and probably I, I guess trying to tie into a little bit of a, a more theological theme that there's a concept of trying to play God that's discussed sometimes when you talk about yep. medical ethics and. And potentially that could be applied to Bashir in this case. Yeah, he certainly is wanting to um, be able to, um, uh, I guess, feel a sense of accomplishment to be the person who actually uh, sets them free and, and begins to, I think, make some associations here between the behaviour of one Jemhadar, uh, Garanagar, uh, and the way that he's he seems to be shifting in his um, understanding and behaviour, um, he doesn't really have any empirical evidence that actually supports that that's got anything to do with the shift in addiction. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I, and I think that potentially if you look at his motivation and what he's trying to do, once he starts to make those stretches in logic, it, it seems like maybe there's more of an intrinsic motivation in himself rather than, than what he's trying to do for this group. Remarkable. Your body is producing the exact amount of Ketracel white you need to survive. But I can't find where it's coming from. There don't appear to be any glands or cell clusters producing the enzyme. Mind you, your entire metabolism defies belief. 
The growth rate of the Jem'Hadar children is extraordinary. I I couldn't help but noticing when he was talking about the diagnosis for Garanagar, um, and the, the, he said that that something had occurred, which actually meant that he was manufacturing the enzyme Ketracel White from his own body, and he couldn't work out where it was coming from. And that occurred to me that, um, and I guess it's a little bit of a of a diversion away from the main theme of this, but it occurred to me that. I mean, in our bodies, we're, we're as human beings, we're actually constantly producing uh, enzymes and drugs and even addictive um, uh, substances in our in our own bodies um, naturally. Um, and um, and and that that if he was still producing that himself, that the effects of that enzyme would still actually be, you know, prevalent in his in his system. Yeah, absolutely. That's a, a great point. I hadn't put those those dots together but that yeah that's very clear when you say it like that potentially the addiction wasn't the issue at all yep and the enzyme was still existing in his system just like for us for example uh adrenaline or testosterone or or a number of other different things that have a have an effect and you know i'm 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 certainly out of my depth talking about those kind of things but but you know i know that they do have uh, have have uh physical and psychological effects on the way that we respond to things yeah, definitely. And I think as as the sort of realm of addiction is becoming better understood over time, it's you sort starting to be able to see how something like a, a gambling addiction, which doesn't have that substance involved, can be treated in such a similar way to a substance abuse because you, the body is sort of filling in those gaps of addiction even without the substance. Yeah, and uh, even in the case of gambling, um, there are chemicals that are produced by the brain that actually um, build up over time or, or that the body yearns for, and so the gambling provides the environment in which those chemicals are released. Absolutely. We're looking at um, this episode called Hippocratic Oath, and we've had a good discussion about the Hippocratic Oath. I think it was an an, an ancient Greek um, uh, uh, thing. Now, I, you, you said before that, I mean, I, that's probably due to COVID that you actually didn't stand up hand on heart to recite it. But does, does that suggest that, you know, pre-COVID and maybe post-COVID that, that that is what medical students do at graduation? They get up and, and swear and an oath of allegiance to an ancient Greek legend? From from my understanding, it is. So it's still part of the graduation ceremony that everyone will read out a, a modernised version of that old old text. So it, it still does form part of the, the tradition, I, I guess you'd say. Do you feel you missed out not being able to do that or you feel like you dodged a, dodged a difficult situation? <laughs> I don't know. I guess you could look at it either way. I think it it's a nice way to cap off the experience and the study and the hard work and, and celebrate the achievement, being able to, to stand up with your peers in front of family and friends. But at the same time, I don't feel like I've really missed out on too much. I think the, the best celebration is being able to get stuck into work and doing what we've trained for. So I think we, we haven't really been done too much of a disservice. Yeah, fabulous. And look, abs- absolutely, we need doctors and nurses and medical professionals more than ever today and uh, i have to say i'm i'm absolutely grateful for all of the work that you guys do um and um and and long hours and and exhaustion i imagine um trying to 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 keep the system running yes yeah it's certainly been difficult let's let's delve into some of the shades of gray um here uh, and uh, it, it sounds 
like you know, uh, you know, we can easily get caught up, especially in the two stories, the A story and the B story. You know, of of sort of polarizing a bit and saying, "Oh well, I'm on Team Bashir, or I'm on Team O'Brien, uh, or I'm on Team Wharf, or I'm on Team Odo," um, and uh, and and I guess you know that that's that's the draw. Sometimes we want to try and make these ethical decisions black and white, um, but um, there's an awful lot of grey in both stories, isn't there? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that the way that they've left some of it open at the end of the, the episodes. Um, for example, not showing whether or not Bashar was capable of, of producing a cure and, and saving the, the oh, I forgot the name again, the Jem'Hadar. Jem'Hadar, perfect. Jem'Hadar yep. um, leaves that open to interpretation and really highlights the grey in, in the situation. Yep. I, I have to say I was very surprised that uh, – uh, that uh, O'Brien opens fire at the medical experiments, but yeah. uh, it could recognize that destroying the work was the only way he was going to get Bashir to leave with him. Potentially. Look, we haven't got enough time to argue about this. If you want to go, go. All right. I will. But you're coming with me. There. You can bring me up in charges when we get back. But there's nothing to keep you here now. So let's get going. Uh, the two of them have been developing a bit of a, a, a an odd relationship over the last little while, and in the early part of the episode, you kind of see that a little bit as they're they're having their discussion about uh, O'Brien's wife coming back, and and uh, and and so there's this friendship that they have um, that gets tested. Uh, due to their rank, one of them's an officer, one of them's a non-commissioned officer. One of them is is quite um, uh, uh, sort of um, coming from a, 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 an elitist British aristocracy kind of place and the other one's a, 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 an Irish soldier. And so you've actually got um, got a really unlikely friendship here that gets sorely tested. Keiko only spends a few days at a time on the station. I'm the one living in those quarters. And if I want to set up a little workshop in the bedroom... You set up a workshop in the bedroom? Yeah. Well, I don't use it when she's visiting. Oh, of course not. She says I'm trying to live like a bachelor again. That I'm expressing a subconscious desire to push her out of our quarters. Now, that is ridiculous. Well, that's what I said. I mean... If anything, by spending your free time in the bedroom, a place you intimately associate with Keiko, you are actually expressing a desire to be closer to her during her absence. It's quite touching, really. Exactly. Exactly. See, you understand. Now, why can't she see that? Why can't she be more like... More like... A man. More like a man. So you wish Keiko was a man? I wish I was on this trip with someone else. That's what I wish. <laughs> uh, by the um, by, the situation they find themselves in. Um, 
So I, I'd love to explore more of the shades of grey that kind of sit in the middle there. Um, um, let's go with O'Brien first. Um, as you saw it unfolding, uh, what were some of the truths that O'Brien was holding to? Well, I think you could you could see, particularly in his efforts, his motivation was was quite clear to be well from his own perspective he felt like he was doing the right thing to protect his partner and Bashir and more broadly to protect um the federation or or the people or the creatures I guess that represent the federation and so you can you can see that he feels like he's doing what he believes to be right the entire time and that may be based more upon his experiences I think he's got more of a a military background is potentially more experienced Mm. in in seeing what the is it the Dominion, yep, um, has, yeah, yep. has been doing against the Federation and how that's coloured his perspective of the situation. And certainly, he's fought in other wars uh, against the Cardassians, who he didn't see today, and uh, and uh, other other foes of the Federation. So his 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 role um, throughout his military career has actually been. Uh, far more of of a soldier, um, and so his his understanding of who the enemy is was very very black and white, mm. very cut and dried, um, and so there was there was no space for for um for 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 any wiggle room there for him. Yeah, yeah, and it it seemed like he was not really willing throughout the entire episode, except potentially right at the very end to open up his his perspective at all and to be willing to hear what, what Bashir or what um, the others in the episode were, were saying and their experiences seemed, seemed quite set in his ways throughout the entire course. So Bashir is actually in the, in the opposite end of the spectrum here um, and um, from a theological perspective potentially um, uh, maybe a little easier to understand in that that he's actually showing a great deal of empathy and compassion for his enemy. Um, and and whilst he describes some of that from the perspective of saying, well, if we can help them to be better people, maybe we won't have enemies. Um, he he has no guarantee of that. But um, I mean, there's several points in the Bible where it actually points out uh, that that for example, Christ dies for us uh, whilst we were still his enemies. Um, and uh, and and there are other parts. Uh, in John's Gospel, that talk about laying down our life for our enemy. Um, so there, there is this kind of, uh, um, I guess, urge from a Christian theological perspective to say that we we shouldn't just uh, rule people out because they have been our enemies in the past, but um, look for ways to be to be helpful. Um, what are your thoughts yeah, on that? I, I think you can definitely see that there, and I think it sort of ties back to the themes of hope and faith and believing in the good in 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 people or in in a group um and sort of giving them a chance if they're forgiven for acts they've done previously they might have a hope for a future that's that's changed and and better um and just because sort of someone or a group can be written off in the past or have a track record of being bad it doesn't mean that they should shouldn't deserve to be treated with with respect and and yeah, having faith in them, in the best in people, I think you can see that. Have uh, Have you had experiences in in your work either in the last two years or whilst you were studying, um, where you you've you've had to come face to face with uh, with with that that kind of unconscious bias? Um, 
I think, I mean, I, from an unconscious point of view, I'm sure it comes up quite a lot. It's probably the, the issue is being aware of it. Yeah. It's hard, yeah. hard to ask somebody about your unconscious bias. That's right. It's unconscious for a reason. Sort of as a profession, we're getting better at reflecting now and being aware of, of our biases. And, and you can certainly, um, I can think of experiences in the past where you see people who you can perceive as having made decisions that have led them to be in the position they're in. And, and you can look at it from a purely sort of economic or, or um, sort of, negative perspective and say well what's the point in, in trying to help someone that's not helping themselves um or help someone that's been doing all these terrible things to their their body or to other people or whatever their background is um and being aware of those biases can help you sort of put them aside um, particularly in medicine it's not not mm. up to you to judge the person in front of you and as, as i was saying before just because someone's done something wrong in the past doesn't mean you shouldn't um, sort of trust that, that they're intrinsically good um, and give them an opportunity to improve mm. as a person. Um, particularly where I'm working at the moment, the hospital I work in, we have um, a ward dedicated for incarcerated individuals. Um, and I think that probably yep. brings that unconscious bias to the fore. Uh, well, it's more, much more conscious when you're reflecting mm. on it, but it certainly puts you in that position where you need to, yeah, to yep. put that judgment aside and and treat people with with yeah with respect and like that you would with anyone else. And I guess you'd become acutely a conscious uh, conscious of of the way your your body responds when you're going into a situation where where there might be a, a, a danger of violence or a, a danger of 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 threat or, or concern. Um, that 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 you know there is a sense of 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 physical alert that would actually happen. Um, and, um, and I guess without reflection, you know, that could end up affecting decisions or, or yeah, absolutely. what might happen next. Um, well, let's uh, continue with yep. the idea of unconscious bias uh, and have a look at the B story, which is, you know, not your area of expertise, but still quite an entertaining um, story um, where we we have Worf who is used to a military environment uh, and he was the head of security on board the Enterprise under Captain Picard. Uh, How many years were you in security, Commander? Seven. Must be a hard habit to break. I remain vigilant. And and in and I guess to 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 clarify different roles here, Worf is still part of the military uh, on on this this space station. Odo is a constable. He's the policeman. I perform my duties as I see fit. You do not seem to be performing them at all. Frankly, Commander, I'm not interested in your opinion of my job performance. Now I suggest you attend to your own duties and stop interfering in mine. Um, and so there's some really interesting dynamics here between the difference between uh, military and the, um, and the way that they would um, have expectations around discipline and what happens, and the way that um, that that police have yeah. to operate in a in a civilian setting. I think you can you can definitely tell sort of even having just watched this one episode, you can tell that Worf's in, a, in an unfamiliar environment and, and doesn't quite know exactly how sort of the, the cultural and societal norms of the place that he's in. Um, and it seems like he's losing sight of the bigger picture, which becomes quite clear at the end of the episode with sort of the, the reveal with Odo being aware of what was going on the whole time and, 
having a, a larger plan in place. Um, and so I think you can definitely see there's a bit of sort of, uh, yeah, sort of loses sight of the, the overall stakes of what's going on, focusing in on a particular sort of finicky uh, eye for detail and wanting to get everything followed to the letter of the law rather than realising what's going on more broadly. Yeah, yep. And just like in the B story, um, who's our ally and who's our enemy becomes quite confused uh, in in the situation. Yes. Um, and those shades of grey actually present themselves again um, as we try to um, uh, navigate a, a complex situation. Absolutely. Yeah. And you can you can sort of see where Wolf's coming from the whole way along is like we were saying with O'Brien earlier, from his perspective, it doesn't seem like he's acting in a malicious or or overtly negative way, but in the same time is interfering with, with what's going on and, and could be seen as having a flawed approach to the particular conflict. Mm. Yep, yep. And, and that brings us to a really interesting point of ethics. I mean, do the ends justify the means, um, both yeah. both in terms of a legal situation, but also also coming back to medical situations. You know, um, um, if if uh, if we can do experiments uh, uh, on or with people um, that might actually save thousands of lives, uh, and it costs us, you know, a dozen lives, um, you know, is it is it is it is it worth doing? Yeah, absolutely. It's certainly a, a tricky topic to to talk about, and you, you get a lot of grey when you start delving into it. But I think it yeah it does come back to that that issue of where do you where do you draw that line, and, and how far can you start to push things before it becomes an issue? And I think it sort of in this situation, you can see that potential. Well, I'm not sure that the broader ramifications in the the sort of the space station for what's going on with with Quark and his activities on a sort of small scale level, but it seems like Odo's decided that, that letting him go on and, and continue his criminal activities is worth it to try and stop it at the source in the long run. And there's a sense in which they may even be collaborating. That uh, yeah. in in some ways, uh, you know, if we were watching, uh, uh, you know, a, a, a modern police investigation show that 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 in some ways uh, uh quarks become a bit of a, a ci you know a, a, a an insider who's uh helping to set up the sting um so uh, which is completely out of um of wolf's vision yeah definitely and i guess if you again look at it from more of a pessimistic viewpoint you can see it if it goes on for too long you can see it becoming a bit of a of a sort of blurring of judgment for Odo and he could fall into the realm of corruption if, if they start working too closely together. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, now let's explore that a bit further. Um, so the the, uh, the 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 further we move away from the black and white and into the grey, um, the more uh, compromise um, we actually need to employ. Um, and, and so that compromise... Um, if left unchecked or or in the midst of the same kind of unconscious bias that might keep us in the black or white space could actually lead us to to make decisions that are actually um, that we think uh, are actually for the greater good but may actually be for our own good instead. Yes, definitely. And I think that would be particularly the case if, if an individual is operating on their own outside of an organisation 
say, for example, if Odo had gone out in their own volition and were having these sort of advisors and separate dealings and having it all kept with them themselves with no sort of larger authority to keep that sort of activity in check, I think that would be a, could be a real re- recipe for, for losing sight or lacking in judgment. Yeah, yeah. So in terms of um, medical ethics um, in, in Australia, in the Australian medical system, uh, are there checks and balances? What are the accountabilities for, for doctors? Um, and um, how, 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 do, how are doctors able to make sure they're, they're staying well and truly inside the line of the system? Yeah, so there, there's sort of a, a few different uh, sort of I guess, fail-safe mechanisms or protective measures in place. Um, one of the first that jumps to mind is the, the sort of overarching registry body, APRA, that um, has a sort of a review board and a, an anonymous reporting process and um, can keep people in, in check or can keep professionals in check from that point of view. Um, I think another sort of... I'm trying to think of a way to word this properly, but I think another um, sort of on a smaller scale level, there's ethics boards within most major health organisations. So like a hospital will have its own ethics review board where people can bring up issues and review cases and there's a continuous sort of development theme to it rather than a a legal and persecutory element to it. Um, And I think that probably the, the thing that has the most impact um, but is less of sort of a legal body is just the training that the doctors get um, and being able to keep each other in check. Um, I think that's the, the sort of the first few things that jump to mind. I'm sure there's a lot more detail and legality behind some of the review boards. But, yeah, there's, there's certainly multiple layers to it. And so there's a peer review kind of process yeah. you're talking about there, but uh, do you also have like uh, mentors and supervision and those kind of things as well? Within some fields, it's certainly sort of a growing area, but I know within psychiatry in particular throughout the training and even once you're fully qualified and working independently, each psychiatrist will still go through a period of review. I don't know if it's on a weekly or a monthly basis depending on where you work. Um, yep. And that's quite a structured way of doing it Um, and it continues on throughout your career regardless of how senior or junior you are. Um, And in a less structured format, a lot of that goes on in other areas of medicine as well. Yep. And I know uh, in in the theological realm as a minister of religion, I'm also required to undergo professional supervision, um, no less than I think it's 10, 10 sessions per year um, because it's, it's, it's actually very easy to lose sight of, of um, where a behavior is appropriate and where behavior is inappropriate, especially in the fields of, of, uh, of, of counseling mm. ministry and psychology um, where, where we're actually having so much, I guess, power uh, to speak into people's lives. Are you required to do super supervising as well as have supervision sessions within the program or do you do only one or the other? So some ministers will actually undergo training to become professional supervisors um, and and some ministers, have, I, I've undertaken qualifications to do peer supervision, so I work with a number of 
of of of groups where I facilitate um, um, discussion groups where we can talk about case studies and explore our our responses and decisions in particular instances. Um, so so yeah, there's a range of different um, approaches, but all the way through, uh, there's a need to make sure that we're properly qualified and uh, up to scratch with those qualifications. Mm. Uh, I guess in the same way that I guess those supervising in psychiatry would also need to. Yeah, definitely. Um, and uh, and certainly, I've called upon psychiatrists uh, and psychologists to actually um, fill those professional roles of supervision in some places in Tasmania. Um, the the only way I could fulfil those requirements was to actually enlist the services of a of a local psychologist okay. uh, who um, had had experience with supervising professionals in in various various um, industry areas. So. There's that sense in which um, the area of medicine um, and psychology um, um, is is changing so quickly um, that the kinds of things that like I even wonder how how training for medicine works these days because I mean it takes how many years of study to to from from beginning to end to be to become a doctor? Ah, uh, so it's five years all up, and that's the most streamlined way to do it in Australia at the yep. moment. Um, but it can be up to sort of seven eight years, and then once you come out and start working, it's many many more years of study and training and working away yep. before you can hit the end of your training pathway. Um, but even then, the, because it's changing so quickly, like you're saying, you never really finished. Yep. It's because even in five years, medicine will have changed so much, uh, and especially given you know um, big changes like COVID has brought to mm. us, that uh, the conduct of medicine uh, and and even uh, things like PPE um, will have will have shifted significantly in the last five years. Yeah, absolutely. In terms of uh, thinking about um, that that whole God complex um, thing and 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 what people deserve and a sense of justice, there's been quite a large debate in Australia about vaccination mm-hmm. uh, and uh, and uh, and certainly protests uh, about vaccination mandates um, and uh, and some people have even. Um, uh, I guess gone to the point of questioning whether or not people who have chosen not to be vaccinated should be uh, um, have have treatment made available to them in terms of uh, um, uh, contracting COVID. Um, and so you can see from Miles O'Brien's perspective and Wolf's perspective how those kind of sentiments exist. Um, and and I, I should imagine in in I don't want to speak for you, but I should imagine in terms of this that that uh, that, that you would lean far more on the Bashir side of things when it comes to those kind of things. But I, I'm interested in your perspective on 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 you know how we use limited resources yeah, um, in the face of people's choices. And and it's it's certainly a topic that that I'm sure is discussed at length, and people would sit at, at different ends of the spectrum, like you said, between. The approach of doing sort of a purely utilitarian let's get the best use out of this or if, you know we just want to treat the people that want to be treated or the people that have done the right thing but I think that if you sort of fall back on on more of a Bashir's perspective which is where I would say that you look at if someone comes to you looking for help you're morally obliged to try and provide it to them regardless of the circumstances that have led them to be in that position um, and I think particularly in a, in a sort of privileged setting like Australia where we are resourced to, to care for, for 
most people there's there's very rarely times when we're running short on on being able to provide at least limited care to people in Australia I, I don't think based on a decision like whether or not someone's had a vaccination should come into the question of whether they should be treated um, but it's certainly a very interesting topic to discuss on a, a sort of more macro level and it's become, I guess, acutely surrounding that vaccination issue, but one that mm. existed before. I mean, uh, you know, uh, treating lung cancer in yeah. smokers, uh, diabetes um, in in people who have disregarded um, the uh, the advice to change their uh, their their eating habits or diet. Um, so, so there's this. There's this sense in which you know um, patient blame um, can can become a, a bias or become a, a factor, um, and 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 really can't become a factor if we're actually going to take this 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 idea of of uh, of treating people um, humanely, yeah, um, absolutely, seriously. And you can you can see a lot of overlap, and you can see some of the the shades in grey, like you were talking about earlier, when you look at those different situations but a lot of the time it'll, it'll stem back like for example with smoking and sort of an availability of information of education there's often a lot of circumstances around why someone's gotten to the position that they are if they come into you unwell with lung cancer it's not for you to say that your decisions have led you here therefore I will treat you differently to how I treat anyone else. Well, um, there's a there's a few uh, uh, Easter eggs and uh, and trivial bits for the uh, Star Trek nerds that I want to cover that you might find interesting. Um, this episode was uh, directed by Rene Aubergine, who plays the role of Odo. So okay. Odo was the director for this episode, um, and uh, and so. Uh, um, that's uh, that's it's always fascinating to see how different directors have uh, have taken that that on board. Um, and uh, the, a nice piece of trivia for this one is that this was actually originally um, the second episode shot in season four, but was moved to be the third episode um, because um, the first episode in the season was all about Worf and how Worf came to the station. And so they slotted the episode we covered last week called The Visitor into the middle to give a bit of a buffer between um, Worf's entry to the station and, and Worf's okay. B story in this episode. So, um, yeah, it's a fascinating uh, way of exploring, um, uh, I guess, in terms of uh, they made a, a production line decision to actually shift um, the the timing of the two episodes. Um it was a well received episode. It uh, it rated well with the fans, uh, and they uh, they seem to enjoy it. Um, and um, uh, I'm just having a look to see what other Easter eggs are here. Um, it's 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 uh, had quite a good array of the cast uh, there uh, available. Um, uh, Gronagar, uh, who is played by Scott McDonald, was first seen in season one uh, of Deep Space Nine, and he played the role of Tosk. Uh, and you might remember uh, that um, my my oldest son um, participated in in a review of that particular episode way back in the beginning, and so uh, worth going back to have a look at that. 
So that's been a fabulous conversation um, around um, medical ethics and shades of grey, about conscious bias uh, and unconscious bias, uh, and uh, the ways in which our narratives and life stories can affect our decision-making without us even realising it. Uh, it's been fabulous to explore the legal B story and the medical A story uh, and to see some really cool action sequences in the process as well. Uh, so something for all of the sci-fi fans. Um, Connor, I want to thank you for joining me for this episode called Hippocratic Oath and, uh, and uh, as an initial exposure to um, science fiction uh, and Star Trek, uh, how, how are you feeling after um, having watched the episode? Yeah, no, it's been it's been great to be on and have these discussions with you, Will, and it's certainly opened up a a new interest for me. And I'll have to go back and start unpicking some of the things or sort of back learning from the start again. Some of the the bigger political um, interactions that you can see going on in the show. Yeah, well, I've intentionally chosen Deep Space Nine because it does deal with those issues. And being a civilian space station, it actually has uh, has has those themes of of ethics, philosophy, theology, and religion. Um, and uh, look, as I would, as I've said to many people, if uh, if uh, you want to use the uh, um, the Deep Faith Nine podcast as a as a tour guide on your way through, then you'll hear the perspectives of of lots of really interesting and diverse people. Um, as they explore the the, 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 the possibilities going forward. Um, I uh, am looking forward to uh, moving into next week uh, as we um, uh, continue our way through. Uh, we'll be uh, looking at the episode called Indiscretion. Uh, and uh, this is an episode that surrounds uh, Major Kira uh, and our, our favourite love-to-hate Cardassian, Goldicott, um, but uh, yeah, I'd um, I'd love to have you on again. There are other opportunities to explore medical ethics with Dr. Bashir in the future, um, so it'd be great to have you on sometime in the future um, if uh, you get right into it, Connor. Well, that sounds good. I'll, I'll certainly have to be a bit more brushed up on on Deep Space Nine next time. Fantastic. Well, this has been the Deep Faith Nine podcast, part of the Never Odd or Even uh, media series. If you'd like to support us uh, by going to our Patreon, um, then uh, we would welcome your support to pay the ongoing costs for RSS feeds and websites and the like. Uh, so you can go to Patreon uh, site Never Odd or Even media um, and support us there as well as uh, picking up a whole range of bonus content uh, from from being there as well. Um, don't forget also that the uh, Voyjourn podcast uh, with our crew, Lindsay Cullen and Elizabeth Rain, are continuing uh, onwards on a weekly uh, basis with their release on Wednesdays. So join us for all of your science fiction um, uh, reflective uh, thought uh, here on Never Order Even. I've been Will Nicholas. Uh, thanks for joining me today. Deep Faith Nine is a never odd or even production.